we're studying through Luke is because Luke presents to us the historic Jesus, Jesus as he actually is. And that's really what most people want. Like you, I don't want liberal Jesus or fundamentalist Jesus or postmodern Jesus or Catholic Jesus or even Baptist Jesus or any other mild distortion of Jesus. I just want Jesus. And and most people, they kind of want to know Jesus. That's what Luke does. In our thinking, we get excited about that because we think, if only I could get in a time machine and go back 2,000 years ago and see Jesus, then I could know him, then I could believe in him. And that's kind of true, and that's why we like to be represented the historical Jesus. But it's kind of not true. And, and, and what I mean is, if we think that the only thing coming between us and belief is 2,000 years of history, just the distance between back then and now, then we're sadly mistaken because in Jesus' day, there were lots of people who supposedly knew him, but they never came to know him as Luke presents him as Savior and Lord. Why is that? Well, because the biggest gap that we have with regards to coming to know Jesus and experience Jesus and believe in Jesus, it's not 2,000 years of history. The big gap is the spiritual gap that's between us and God, and, and that's really 100% on us. We see this so clearly when we come to this one particular episode in the book of Luke. It's Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. Let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. And uh, just real quickly, let me give you some geographic background. Uh, Jesus, early in his ministry, Luke shows, goes to the region of Galilee. It's the northernmost region in Israel. It's about 50 miles by 50 miles. In the middle of the region of Galilee is the Sea of Galilee. And it's about 15 miles north to south, five miles east to west at its widest point. And there are lots of villages and towns all around the Sea of Galilee, mostly between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. And where Jesus grows up is in the region of Galilee, in this little town in the southern section of Galilee called Nazareth. He grows up there from a boy to a man and becomes a carpenter. And there, as a carpenter, he no doubt helps to provide for his family. And when I say his family, I'm talking about his mother and brothers and sisters, his siblings, not about his wife and children. Because as best as we can tell, Jesus' dad, Joseph, dies sometime between uh, Jesus' adolescence and the age of, of 30. And so Jesus is a carpenter. He's helping to provide for his family there in Nazareth. And so there are probably lots of people who know him there. And uh, Luke tells us he went into to Galilee, and there's this other town that's very important. It's on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. It's called Capernaum, and Jesus spends most of his time, the last three years of his life, in Capernaum. And, and he ministers a lot to the towns and villages in the 20 miles between Capernaum and his hometown of Nazareth. Okay, there's the geographic setup. Let's go ahead and read the scripture together, starting with verse 16. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, so again... Likely people, there's some people there that know him. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed to announce the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. 
They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, doctor, heal yourself. What we have heard took place in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. He also said, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. But I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was closed for three and a half years while a great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them except a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had leprosy, yet not one of them was cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove him out of town, and brought him to the edge of the hill upon which their town was built, intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. God bless Reem's word. You may be seated. Now, there is a parallel in Mark's gospel to this particular passage. And the parallel in Mark's gospel is a very short passage. It's just verses 14 and 15. And the reason we know Mark's uh, parallel is the same as Luke over here is not because it says the same things, but because immediately preceding and following the passage that we just read out of Luke, it's exactly the same immediately preceding and following uh, the passage in Mark. And so here's Mark's parallel. It's a summary statement. Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now that word repent, it's not only in Mark's gospel, it's actually all over Luke's gospel. It's a really big theme in the gospel of Luke and in Acts, which is also written by Luke. And and here we see, even though the word repentance is not mentioned, this passage in many respects is about repentance because... It shows us what happens when an entire community of people doesn't repent. The reason Jesus can't do anything there, the reason he has to leave, the reason he can't do miracles, the reason they don't respond is because the the town is essentially unrepentant. To repent just basically means to admit the need for change, to acknowledge I am not what I should be, I am not what I, I, I have not been what I should be, and I'm not going where I should be going, and repentance is the acknowledgement of that. But without repenting, without acknowledging the need, things don't come together the way they need to come together. Uh, things don't happen that could otherwise happen. Gordon MacDonald talks about repentance like this. He says, repentance is like this business term the critical transaction. I'd never heard this before, but he defined the critical t- transaction as the event that has to take place that justifies or empowers everything else that a business does. For example, in the airline business, the critical transaction is not when the plane takes off. It's not when the mechanic fuels up the plane or fixes the plane. The critical transaction is when the person at the ticket counter decides, I am not where I need to be, and I need you to take me from where I am to where I know you can take me. So I acknowledge I'm not in the right place, and and I acknowledge that publicly, and I'm giving you what you need to take me where I need to go. I trust in you, Southwest. Okay, that's that's the critical transaction. Everything else in the business is justified and empowered by that critical transaction. Now, in the church, what's the critical transaction? The critical transaction is repentance. It's acknowledging 
the need for Jesus. I am not what I should be. I have not been what I should be. I'm not going where I need to be going. It's that acknowledgement. It's repentance. And until that happens, the church can't be what God designed the church to be because at the center of the church is the gospel and at the center of the gospel is Jesus. And so there, without repentance, the church can't really do much. We can, we can give lessons. Okay. That can happen. We can teach. We can entertain, I suppose. There is, we can come together and encourage and comfort one another. These things can happen. But at the heart of the gospel is Jesus, and at the heart of welcoming Jesus and seeing Jesus for who he is, is repentance. And, and that's why if you were to ask me, hey, what's one of the things that you'd like to see happen or continue to happen? Here's, here's my passion for the church, that we'd be a welcoming church, but above all else, we would be welcoming to Jesus. And we're not welcoming to Jesus if we don't come repentant, if we don't come acknowledging, Jesus, we need you. And so in the time that remains this morning, I want to unpack and apply this passage for you and for me by answering three basic questions concerning repentance. One, why should repentance be so easy with Jesus? Number two, why is repentance so hard with Jesus? And what is the tragedy, the extreme tragedy in failing to repent? Now, we'll start real easy. Why should repentance be easy with Jesus? Well, because Jesus comes to us. I mean, he just, he comes to Nazareth. He steps into the synagogue. All they have to do is welcome him. How easy could it be? All we have to do is receive. That's it. Simple. Number two, Jesus wants to make our lives better. He dramatically changes lives. And everybody in Nazareth knows that he changes lives. They've heard about the miracles. They've heard about the blind seeing. They've heard about the healings. They've heard about all these kinds of things. They know Jesus changes lives and thereby they infer that he wants to change lives. And when Jesus comes, he affirms that he does want to change lives and he is able to change lives. He says at the heart of my ministry is changing people for the better. That's why he quotes out of the book of Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to do what? To preach good news to the poor He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to announce the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus mentions four categories of people, four groups of people, types of people that apparently were absolutely stuck, whose lives could not change except for the intervention and salvation of Jesus. Let's just kind of think through these one at a time. The poor. When you were poor in Jesus' day, you were stuck. If you were born poor, you lived poor, you died poor. You were poor. You didn't bounce out of your poverty. That, that was your status for life. Number two, if you were blind, you were stuck. You're, you're blind forever. Now, we have medicines and cataract surgeries and certain technological advances and things that can at least impede the advance of macular degeneration and all the rest. We still got a lot of work to do, but people are not entirely hopeless if there's a disease. In Jesus' day, if you were blind... You stayed blind. You you died blind. You were stuck. That's why they were always amazed when Jesus would, would heal blind people because that never happened. Nobody ever recovered their sight except for Jesus. Uh, the Bible also talks about, or Jesus here mentions, you know, uh, liberating those who are in prison, setting the, ca- the, the, the prisoners free, releasing the prisoners. Listen, if you were in prison, you didn't get out of prison. Now, prison sentences, they're not life sentences. And even if they are, you can get out for good behavior. And maybe you can get a really good lawyer who can get you out because there's this whole appellate system. 
People who go to prison, most of the time they get out of prison before they die in the vast majority of cases. And if you are in prison, there's these educational opportunities. You can improve yourself, get a degree, all the rest. In Jesus' day, if you were in prison, you died in prison. There weren't super lawyers. There weren't appellate systems. a, a, A prison sentence in Jesus' day most of the time was just a death sentence that was carried out over the next 10 years or 20 years. But you you were a prisoner for life. Captives, what's that talking about? It's talking about slaves. And we're not talking about indentured servants uh, who kind of work their way out of indebtedness for a period of time. We're talking about people who are captured slaves, born slaves. And when you were a slave, you were a slave for life. You were stuck there. You know what Jesus is communicating? I'm here to do what nobody else could possibly do. I can change conditions in people's lives that other people couldn't have even imagined addressing ever. Because when you're poor, you're always poor. When you're blind, you're always blind. When you're a prisoner, you're always a prisoner. When you're a captive, you're always a captive. That's just the way of the world, but I've come to fix that and set you free. How liberated can Jesus make us? He lets us know. I'm here to announce the year of the Lord's favor. What is that? Well, he's talking about What Isaiah is quoting, he's reaffirming what Isaiah is quoting. It's this passage out of Leviticus chapter 25, the idea of the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee had this idea of every 50th year in history, there would be this grand forgiveness of debt. Now, apparently, that never actually happened, but it was in the Bible. And the idea was, look, if if you're so hard off, if you're so poor, if you're so down in your luck and you need to sell all your property to survive, well, okay, that's really too bad. And you're poor, but the person that you gave your land to 50 years later is going to have to return it to you or to your family. It's like there's this pressing of the reset button where everything gets reset. You think about your home debt, your car debt, your college debt, your credit card debt. Just imagine all that just being wiped out over a period of time. You say, I'm not sure that's going to work. And that's why people just didn't really do it because people who... To whom you're indebted, they don't, they're not wild about this whole idea. But the idea here is the year of Jubilee was pointing forward to a time that was actually pointing back to the beginning of time. A time would be coming where we would be returned to paradise that was lost. Paradise lost is going to be restored. Everything that needs to be undone will be undone. Everything that needs to be set right will be set right. Jesus is saying, I'm the year of Jubilee. I'm announcing it. The kingdom of God has come. The time is fulfilled. I'm here. Now, that's radical. And it's radically applied to the people to whom he's speaking because he's saying, as you hear this, as I speak to you, this is the scripture has been fulfilled. There's an implication that Jesus is not just announcing in a general way, hey, I'm beginning my messianic ministry. He's announcing the nature of his messianic ministry. And he's saying, my messianic ministry is to you. And I hope that you're not so blind that you can't see that you have blindness. Has that ever happened to you where you, you hit somebody in a blind spot where you didn't know that there was an issue with you and then there was an issue with you? If you've had blind spots in the past, you probably have blind spots now. There hopefully is enough sight in you to recognize that you don't see everything that you ought to see. You don't see the back of your head. Last, last night I was looking at the back of my head. It's like, I'm so glad I don't have to look at that. You know, the, my neck's not shaved all nice and even or whatever. I don't ever look at the back. It's a blind spot. And I'm glad it's a blind spot. Y'all can tell me about the back of my head later on. I'm just saying, you ought to be wise enough to know that you're blind. You ought to be wise enough to know that you're not as rich as you may 
want to think that you are, that maybe you are imprisoned or enslaved in ways that you're not even aware of. You, the worst kind of enslavement is the enslavement that you don't even know is it exists. Caught in the matrix. I don't know. But Jesus is speaking to them. If you're poor of spirit, if you see that you're blind, if you see that you're imprisoned, if you see that you're captive, I've come for you in your hearing as you're listening to this. The scripture is fulfilled. I'm here to set you free. It's an amazing moment. And that ought to make repentance easy. Because if Jesus comes to you and all you have to do is welcome him, and if you know and believe that Jesus is able to help you and wants to help you, then why wouldn't you admit your need to him? I can see not wanting to admit a need to somebody else that you know doesn't care about you, doesn't want to help you, isn't able to help you. But if somebody wants to help you and can help you, it ought to be really, really easy to repent. On top of that, and here's just kind of a third different point altogether, this is God on your side. Jesus is God on your side. Um, we could look at all kinds of different things in the passage that are implied here, but, but you'll notice that before we even get to the passage, it talks about how Jesus has been baptized by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, anointed with the Holy Spirit. When you were given the Spirit of your Father, that was the same as there not being any distance between you and your Father. What you see in the Son, you see in the Father. The, the heartbeat of Jesus reflects the heartbeat of God for you. God's on your side. And this is, in fact, God in the flesh, so we could look at other passages. But right here, Jesus doesn't even hesitate to compare himself to the great prophet, the greatest of all prophets, Elijah, and to Elisha as well. And then, of course, at the end of the story, when everybody wants to murder him, what does he do? He just walks right through the middle of him. You know how he does that? He has a knife. No, it's not really. No! He knows karate! In other texts, it says, yeah, and there were dead bodies laying all over the ground as he left. No, no. The implication of the text is... He's God. You're not going to take his life until he's ready for his life to be given. Okay? This is God on your side. Great big God. And when God's on your side, who can stand against you? There's this interesting survey that I saw not too long ago. It was uh, done in Great Britain. And people went door to door asking people about their beliefs in God. And the title of this little investigation was called Ordinary God. And it was based on one representative response of somebody they knocked on his door. They knocked on this guy's door and said, do you believe in a God who has, who performs miracles, who intervenes in the events of humanity, who, who, who does things that are supernatural? Do you believe in that God? And this man said, oh, no, no, I don't believe in that God. I believe in the ordinary God. Like, what, what does that even mean? Jesus is not ordinary God. He's God. And so when you put it all together, okay, this is God on my side. This is God who wants to intervene. This is God who can intervene. He can do incredible things in my life. He's come to me. All he wants me to do is welcome him and everything can be set right and be made better in my life. That ought to make repentance super easy. Right? But we know repentance is not easy. We don't naturally do it. We don't even naturally do it around churches. In fact, repentance is so very hard oftentimes because of Jesus. Now, I'm not blaming Jesus. I'm just saying that there's something about Jesus that absolutely to our core challenges us in such a way that repentance isn't really easy, not natural. Uh, What do I mean? Let me point out four things in this passage, and it's going to resonate with you. This is going to make sense to you. One of the reasons it's so difficult for us to repent with Jesus is Jesus just doesn't exist for our edutainment purposes. Okay, let me, let me elaborate on this. Uh, the scene here in Sabbath 
morning routine synagogue is vaguely familiar, okay? You've got dozens and dozens of Jewish men. They've gathered. They're sitting on the floor in the middle of the synagogue. And there are women, as they typically would. They would stand at the back and around the edges. And, and Jesus shows up and the place is packed because everybody's buzzing about this visitor. Hey, we got a hometown boy. And he's been doing miracles in Capernaum. And so the place is packed. And their initial response is relatively positive. Uh, you know, they were speaking well of him and... And they are, you know, amazed at the gracious words that are coming from his mouth. And, and they're, they're all excited for him to be here, there. And, and they're probably thinking in their minds he's going to say something like, It's so good to be back in my hometown. and I couldn't do it without you all. And now look at what I can do. Or whatever. I don't know what they were expecting. But they were expecting a show. And I'm not picking on them because everybody likes a good show. And everybody likes a good lesson. And so you put it all together, it could have been a wonderful edutainment moment. But for those who've shown up only for a lesson or for entertainment or some combination of above or, or maybe a, a pep rally of us versus them, Jesus is so severely disappointing. Things start going off the rails a, a, a little bit early when they start thinking that, hey, maybe Jesus isn't just talking to us, but maybe he's talking to us about us. And, and it sinks in slowly because Jesus directs their attention to a very familiar passage. And when speakers direct attention to familiar passages, we just assume that he's going to say what we already know because we already figured it out. And so that doesn't matter. I'm not here to really learn anything. I'm here to be entertained or for some sort of community or for a pep rally. And, and that's how it gets started because I say, we've, we've heard this passage a thousand times. We, we know all that. One day there's going to be Messiah and he comes and he's going to be like Moses and he's going to deliver us from them. Because back in Moses' day, people were in fact needing to be delivered from the Egyptians. And they say, we're the ones who need to be delivered from them. And in their day, they thought they need to be delivered from the Romans. And so the people in the synagogue were very, very big on repentance. We're all for repentance. We think everybody in the world out there needs to repent. Everybody in the world needs to repent except for the Sabbath morning synagogue regulars. Because we all know what the real problem is around here. It's the government. That sound familiar? Okay, a little bit. I'm not saying that our government's wonderful. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just, I'm just saying, does that sound familiar? And then they start figuring, oh, wait. Uh, he's talking to us. And it gets a little, it gets a little weird. Jesus doesn't exist for our edutainment purposes. That's part of why we have a hard time repenting. We just think repentance is for everybody else. And church is about, you know, it's where I'm here to, you know, see some people I haven't seen in a week. And I want to learn something new. And, you know, I hope it's kind of fun. And nobody there comes to synagogue to repent. Nobody there is primarily looking to Jesus to help fix their needs. Because the same problems that existed in Jesus' day, they exist in our day. These little defense mechanisms. You know how it works. Denial. Ugh, I don't have any problems. Or blame. Yeah, yeah, I know I have some problems. But what am I going to do? It's not my fault. Everybody else has done me wrong. Or defensiveness. Well, you know, hey, stop stepping on my toes. That's just your opinion. 
And then there's kind of the vindictiveness or the spitefulness. Well, it's those guys. Stop talking to me. That's so much worse over here. And you know all the defense mechanisms. They're all active in Jesus' day. And so for the people who came for a pep rally, us versus them, or just a lesson, or just some entertainment, or maybe even, you know, a really cool miracle, they're all really, really disappointed with Jesus. In fact, they get angry about it. There's, a, there's another reason that repentance with Jesus is so hard, and that is Jesus, he just, he's so exclusive. I mean, the, the Spirit is on him. He's the one that's been anointed. He's the one and only. That never sits well with people. It's just, it's just kind of hard to take. And in our day, the exclusivity of Christ doesn't sit well with us either. He's, he's not just a Messiah. He's the Messiah. Okay. Hmm. There was a survey that was done by the Pew, uh, public, religion and public forum research group. And, and they surveyed all these Christians, about 3,000. And it was discovered that not, not just everybody, but Christians in particular, the majority of Christians, it was a slight majority, but it was a majority of Christians believe that Jesus is their savior, but there are other saviors. There are other ways to have eternal life other than Jesus. This is coming from Christians. In other words, here's the, the sentiment. Jesus, you're special. You're just not that special. Now, I'm, I'll let God sort all these things out. I'm just going to tell you that is a tremendous compromise to authentic, full-bodied, consistent repentance. And let me, let me, let me kind of spell this out for you, help you to understand. If, uh, if Jesus is your part-time Savior, but he's not your full-time Savior, then he's just a Savior, and he's certainly not Lord. Let's go to the airline metaphor. You get to this point, and you go, I'm not where I need to be, and I want to be somewhere else. And so I place my faith in you, Southwest, unless there's a better deal with British Airways or Blue Sky or Alaska Airways or whatever the options may be. If that's the case, if you're a 20% or let's say you're an 80% committed to Southwest, but 20% of the time other options, then, then Southwest is just a Savior, but it's not the Savior. It's certainly not the Lord of the sky. If Jesus is your 80% of the time person to whom you turn, but you turn somewhere else 20% of the time because it suits you better, well, Jesus isn't your pilot. Like, you are. You've left your options open. But but what the Bible teaches is that as Christians, we're Jesus maximalists. And I know that just kind of rubs people wrong. And I, and I get people who are Christians, self-described Christians, who are not Jesus maximalists. Who He's not the only way. He's just a way. There's lots of other ways where the, the, the poor and the blind and the imprisoned and the slaves are going to be set free. He's not the only way. I always kind of find that a little strange how people can get mad at me for being a Jesus maximalist when Jesus was the original Jesus maximalist. That, that, that either makes your repentance absolute and complete if you come to terms with that or you're not really repenting. This isn't just an idea that's out there somewhere that Jesus is supreme. It cuts right to the very heart of what it means to truly repent. 
There's another reason that repentance doesn't always come so easy with Jesus, and that is sometimes we're a little bit too familiar with Jesus. And I don't, I don't, I'm not saying you can't know Jesus too well. I just think that sometimes we're like the people in the crowd who go, well, you know, isn't this Joseph's son? I don't know that that's patently negative, but you can imagine that there's a woman at the back of the room who says, you know, when Jesus was growing up, I remember telling him, get out of that olive tree, you're going to break your neck. That's no Messiah. Or maybe Jesus had some friends and they would go down to the ravine and throw rocks at things and, and some guy sitting on the floor goes, wait, wait, I could always throw a rock farther than Jesus. A, a Messiah with a below average arm? I don't think so. You know, we have these weird ways of judging Jesus that don't really fit Jesus. But I know that's the case. That's why I'm always reluctant to play softball because my arm is terrible. And if you play golf with me for 18 rounds, you might stop believing in God. Okay, so I just I just know that's kind of how it works with people. And so we get too familiar with Jesus. And so Jesus is kind of right to say no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Anybody in prophetic ministry knows there is no such thing as a home field advantage. It, it's funny, and Jonathan's going to affirm this maybe later on, I don't know. But, you know, if you're a youth pastor, you could teach your kids for like three months on one subject. And it's like not getting through, not getting through, not getting through. And then you go to youth camp, and then some guy who's really not that good says something. And then the kids are bawling. Oh, that was the greatest message ever. And then there's this breakthrough. It's like, man, what am I, chopped liver? No, you're just a prophet in your hometown. That's just the way that it works because kids are neophiles. They like the new things. We live in a culture of neophiles where we just love the new things. And, and so Jesus is right. No prophet is honored in his hometown. We just get so familiar with them and, and then people just get bored with Jesus. It's crazy. Then Jesus gives two illustrations of that truth that the prophet's not accepted in his hometown. And it's in these two illustrations that that we see the fourth reason. And this is the major reason why repentance with Jesus is so incredibly hard. Jesus just walks all over our assumptions that we have privileged position. Narcissists hate this. You know, we say to Jesus, well, you're special, but you're not that special. And Jesus says, well, actually, you're special, but you're not that special. I mean... When God's good to us, it's because of the goodness of God. It's not because of the goodness of us. And Jesus has the audacity to walk into their synagogue and explain to them that maybe God's going to leave them behind while he goes after and pours grace out on these unloving, undeserving foreigners who've attacked the people of God. Jesus gives a couple of illustrations. He points out, Elijah, the greatest prophet. He says, you know, think about it, guys. Elijah, during his day, there was like three and a half years of famine, and the people who are lowest on the socioeconomic ladder are the widows, and they're really hurting. There are lots of hurting widows in Israel. But God didn't send Elijah to any of them. He sent him to a widow at at Zarephath in Sidon, one of the foreigners that was a hater of the people of God. And then he mentions Elisha and says, remember Elisha? There were all kinds of lepers in, in that day. All, all, people had leprosy all over the place, but none of them was cleansed except God sent Elisha to Naaman, who happens to be a Syrian, and not just any Syrian. He was the commander of the Syrian army who was attacking the people of God. Now, Jesus is reminding them of some things that they already know, and that's kind of the worst when you get reminded of something you already know. You just can't deny what's being told to you, and they get really angry. But it's kind of obvious what Jesus is telling them. 
Look, when God heals, when God loves, when God shows grace to you, it's not because you were so deserving. God causes the sun to rise on the righteous and the unrighteous. He sends the rain on the evil and the, and the good. He's just good. Not you, it's God. And he's pretty obvious in terms of reminding us of this truth that if you think you deserve and can demand the grace of God in your life and the mercy of God and the healing of God, how arrogant is that of you? More to the point, if you demand mercy and you demand grace, well, God can't give you mercy or grace because it's not mercy or grace if it's owed to you. In fact, if you're owed anything, it's your wages and the wages of your life because of sin is death. You guys... You don't have some privileged status where you can demand of me to do here what I've done in Capernaum. That's not how it works. They're arrogant. They're not humble. And as a result, they miss Jesus. And that's the real tragedy here. You know, when you're confronted with something that you know that's true and you can't deny that it's true, you've got one of two options. You can repent or you can kill the messenger. And they opt for the, they opt for the second. They're going to kill the messenger. At least they're going to try. And that brings us to the real tragedy in the whole event, okay? When they heard this, the Bible says, they uh, they were enraged. Everybody was enraged. And so they got up, all of them. Can you imagine this church service? This is like a business meeting. They all got up and they drove them out of town and they, and they uh, you know, took them to the edge of the hill upon which the town was built, intending to hurl them over the cliff. Here, Here's the thing. Here's God on your side come to you, all you have to do is welcome him and all he wants to do is heal you and restore you and he has all the ability to do it uh, and they get nothing of what it is that he wants to offer. They want to kill him, he wants to give them life. And they miss the moment. And this is this is the part that kind of, it gives me, I have chills right now, it's terrifying. He doesn't come back. He, he walks right through the crowd and leaves, and he never comes back to Nazareth. They miss their moment. Jesus is actually preaching what he... He's actually practicing what he's going to preach later on. Because later on, a few chapters later, he sends out the disciples and he says, you know, go preach the good news of the kingdom of God and heal the sick. And when he sends them out, he gives them this instruction. This is over in chapter 9. He gives them this instruction... If they don't welcome you, he uses the same word, welcome. If they don't welcome you, then when you leave that town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. We sometimes are under the impression, I'm just going to, I'm going to repent on my schedule. And Jesus has a schedule of his own. Now, I want to be real careful here. To say Jesus is not like one of the sharks on the shark tank. Here's your deal. You got 30 seconds. You know, whatever. That, no. But he has a schedule. He has a time frame. And, and don't be deceived into thinking, well, you know, the plane's not going to leave until I'm good and ready. No, the, the plane will leave with or without you. And so when you have the opportunity to welcome him, you, you do it. Now, God's a God of second chances. But sometimes we interpret that along the lines of, he's just going to have to wait on me. Look, 
Jesus is not afraid of staying in town because he doesn't love the people or care about the people passionately. That's why he came. Jesus is not unaware of their murderous intent, but he still speaks the truth anyway, and he does it in love and gentleness and kindness. He's on their side. But Jesus has other things to do. There's a 12-year-old girl that needs to be raised from the dead. There's this tax collector that needs to be confronted and healed so he can return extorted money to the poor. There's this woman caught in the act of adultery who's got an angry mob of her own with which to contend. Jesus has other things to do. And so he just passes right through the crowd and goes on his way because what else is Jesus supposed to do? Jesus can do nothing for unrepentant people. Jesus does not stay where Jesus is not welcome. Now, I have another kind of question that comes up from the text, and maybe you have the same question too. Well, what would have happened if Nazareth had welcomed Jesus? Well, I don't know. But what I do know is what happened in Capernaum, which did welcome Jesus, and where he spends about three years doing ministry. A little bit later on, John the Baptist sends some disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one that that we've been waiting for? Should we expect someone else? And Jesus responds to the disciples, go and tell John, John the Baptist, what you've seen and and heard. The blind receive their sight, the, the lame walk. Those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. How tragic to be offended by Jesus. I, I don't know what all could have happened in Nazareth, but I could imagine a few things. I could imagine some homes being restored. I could imagine some blind people being sighted. I could imagine some people who hadn't walked in a long time walking with liberty and joy. I, I could imagine things happening in Nazareth that were happening in Capernaum. And the reason I can imagine that is because God doesn't favor one person over the other. He didn't favor the Jews because they were Jews over the Gentiles. He loved the Gentiles and the Jews alike, the Syrians and the Israelites alike. What God has done before he can do for you and wants to do for you. And then you look in the rearview mirror and And sometimes you just wonder, what could have happened in my marriage or in my relationships or my friendships or my life if all I had done was to welcome the God who's on my side, who all he wanted to do was give me everything that I deep down inside wanted. And in case anybody here wants to judge Jesus for not hanging around the town a little bit longer and being a little more gracious and patient with people who wanted to throw him over a cliff, just know this. Later on, even though he doesn't go back to Nazareth, later on, a little over two years later, for the people that tried to murder him, by his own will and by the will of the Father, he threw himself off a cliff that extended all the way from heaven above to the pit of hell below. Now, if you have a God like that who gives the second chance and does everything he possibly can for you, um, well does it make sense to not welcome him? Really? My, my desire for you, wherever you're at, is two things. Uh, one would be, okay, welcome him. So what does that mean? Does it mean pray to receive Christ right now? Well, okay, that could be that. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. But it could mean you're just going to lean in. You're going to invite him over. You're going to let him speak to you. You're going to get to know him better. 
That's a welcome. But to those of us who are synagogue insiders, so to speak, here's the other invitation. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday when we come here, we come here with the expectation of, Jesus, I know you're going to speak to me, and, and I acknowledge I need you. I'm not where I am personally. I'm not where I am in my marriage. I'm not in my relate. I'm not pointing out all your things. I'm just telling you, as somebody who isn't Jesus, every Sunday, my attitude and your attitude ought to be fundamentally one of repentance. Because Jesus wants to take you from where you are to a place that's even better. He gives us truth, but it's not to crush us. He gives us truth because He wants to heal us. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for, for Jesus. Thank you for so much for, for Luke communicating the truth about Jesus. And we've gone over this how this is historical. This is not made up fluff. I mean, we don't have to revisit all that. We're just so, we're so glad, Lord, that you've given us this book that points beyond itself to Jesus. And I, I thank you, Lord, that you, you love even uh, folks like us. And it's not because we're so great. It's because you are. And we know that. But I pray, Lord, in humility, not just every weekend, but every day, as Jesus, you reveal yourself to us in different ways, that we would just take the opportunities to acknowledge our need for you because as we acknowledge our need for you, you show up in powerful ways again and again and again by your grace. Repentance is a a lifestyle. It's a day-by-day, hour-by-hour occurrence. The truth doesn't wound. It sets us free in light of a gracious, loving God. We know this. But, Lord, I also do ask that if there are any here this morning that are, are ready to welcome all the way in you, that you would give them the ability to just say to you right where they are, Lord, I, I know I've sinned and I've just done wrong, not because, well, that's just my nature. I've heard your word talks about how we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that we're all selfish, and this is true. I know this of me. But I also know, Lord, you're a God that can do what nobody else can do. You can bring the dead to life. You can forgive all manner of sins. So, Lord, right now I just acknowledge that I've sinned. I've fallen short, and I need a Savior. Not just a Savior, the Savior, the Messiah. And so, God, right now I confess my need for Christ and I accept Christ as my Savior. And, Lord, thank you, Lord, for living the life I should have lived, dying the death I should have died. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen.